New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community, proudly supported by Umbrella Connect. Greetings and welcome to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain, and founder at Gorilla Technology, a firm that specialises in digital enablement and technology services for small to medium New Zealand firms. Today, we have the privilege of hearing from US-based New Zealander Michael Howard, who has had a massive impact in reducing cybersecurity risk globally and currently advises on security in relation to Microsoft's Azure cloud computing services. We're going to hear career insights and advice from Michael, including how he came to convince Microsoft founder Bill Gates of the importance of writing secure code, which led to Gates' famous company-wide memo on trustworthy computing in January 2002. Without further ado, let's jump into the interview which I recorded earlier today. This uh, episode is, is long overdue, one that's been planned for a while. We're speaking with Michael Howard, who, I'm not sure, how do you describe yourself, Michael? Uh, you know, you've been with Microsoft for 28 years, you're in the cybersecurity space, but what's your what's your actual role? Um, hey, well, first of all, Paul, thank you so much for having me. It's, like you say, it's been long overdue. I don't know how many years you and I have been talking about this. Um, so what, you know, what do I do? Um, I mean, I mainly work with customers on Azure Security, uh, almost exclusively Azure security, helping them navigate, you know, how to design systems on Azure, how to make sure that they're resilient to attack, um, make sure they're robust in the face of, you know, denial of service, uh, secure code, all that good stuff. I mean, you know, I've been at, like you say, I've been at Microsoft for 28 years. Um, it's almost always been in some form of security or at least development security role. Um, and even today, you know, after 28 years, I'm still kind of doing very similar stuff. Just the platform underneath has changed. I think you've got quite an interesting story to tell. When I uh, first came across you, was probably quite some time before I, I met you, if my dots join up correctly, and you, and you can fill me in on this. The first computer uh, that my brother and I owned uh, in our house growing up in, in uh, Rickerton and Christchurch was this thing called the Sega SC3000, which oh was, uh, you know, Sega were, were one of the uh, makers of arcade games, and through... A particular distribution channel, and you probably remember more details of this than than I do. But uh, through uh, what was FTC Farmers Trading Company at the time, you could yep. walk in there and play games on these things. And I don't yep. know how old I was, um, you know, maybe you know ten or something. And uh, you could, could actually go in and touch and feel and use this technology. And and we ended up buying one um, probably at the end of its lifespan, actually, because it didn't sort of stick around too yeah. many years uh, and it's at some point I think they probably marked them down a bit and um, my brother and I decided we could we could pull our money and uh, and buy one of these things my brother ended up learning how to develop software because there weren't too many games and all they were expensive probably and so he he learned how to uh, work in assembly language and you know was coding this stuff I'd look over his shoulder and you know I learned some other languages but that, that all looked a bit complex for me but you had some involvement with that uh, that technology as well, if I recall correctly. Oh, yeah, I'll be honest. I, I did not know you were going to go that far back. <laughs> um, you're absolutely right. A whole, I mean, this is amazing. Okay, so, yeah, I was actually hired to work. It was Grandstand um, at the time. Uh, they were in Newmarket in Auckland. And um, 
the, the problem was that there was actually very little software for for the system. And um, I was asked to come on and do some do some programming work for them, which I did. And uh, I was lucky in that I'd already done quite a lot of Z80 assembly language because uh, I actually had a ZX81 before that. Right, because there was quite a lot of similarity in the in the technology and what you know Sega launched compared to the yeah the Sinclair ZX81, the ZX Spectrum, and yeah you know, some of the other computers that were basically coming out at that that time that you know some of our older listeners like us might well remember. It's funny you should bring that up because there's a reason why the Segas used the Z80, and that was because back then just about every arcade machine had at least one Z80 inside it. So most arcades went down to the arcade and put your, you know, put your uh, put your twenty in there to play a, a game of you know Defender or something. It was running. I think Defender actually was running two Z80Bs in parallel. I can't remember. But uh, but yeah, it was all based on that CPU, and I was lucky enough. I'd actually spent a lot of time writing a lot of Z80 assembly language, and so that got me into sort of a foot in the door um, into Sega or Grandstand at the time. Uh, the company was run by uh, a family um, called the Kenyans, and here's a funny little point: about three or four years ago, I actually uh, met up with Phil Kenyon, who had actually hired me. He and I met in Houston, just outside Houston in Texas. And we had uh, we had lunch together, and it was absolutely fantastic catching up after all these years, um, just sharing stories of um, you know those those days. But yeah, man, I did not know you're going to go that far back. Yeah, <laughs> obviously from from there, you eventually ended up with um, with Microsoft distributor Brian Moore. Then Microsoft themselves came into New Zealand, and, and I think that was where I had interacted with you on the on the phone. I was with a company that was, uh, yeah, as far as I'm aware, was the the only company in New Zealand at the time that specialised in Windows. The, the, you know, the big tech yep. companies didn't use you know too much about Windows in the in the early 90s. That changed re- reasonably quickly with yeah, as Windows 3.1 and, and then Windows 95 came through and it, and it became really, really mainstream. But I think that was where, where you and I sort of interacted on the phone and then, uh, you know, one, one day you gave me a call that sort of, you know, flipped things, I think, a little bit for me sort of career-wise because you were working at Microsoft and uh, I think there was a, a transition of support processes or, or something and, you know, I was contracted to, to be involved with that team you were working on. Yeah, that was um, Justin Benjamin was running the uh, support. Julian, uh, wasn't it? Ju- Julian Benjamin. I'm so sorry. It was Julian <laughs> Benjamin. Yeah, he and actually, here's a funny little story as well. When I actually moved to Redmond, Believe it or not, he was actually the house behind me. <laughs> uh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't even realize. But um, yeah, Julian Benjamin. So he was running the support organization, and I was doing primarily um, compiler support, developer support, you know, C C plus plus support on Windows. Uh, so that was my main, my main niche, which is, you know, it's kind of what happened when I left, you know, because Grandstand ended up doing Amstrad's, right? So Amstrad then ended up having a PC. So a PC, you know, MS-DOS, I was programming an MS-DOS, which put me in a good position to, you know, to end up working at Brymore, which then put me in a good position to work at Microsoft, right? So all these, like, all these little things as you're navigating through life, right? Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So there, there must have been, uh, I mean, even at that time, you must have had some decisions to sort of make along along the way in terms of you know what to do, or did the did you just end up usually with some good options presented and it was pretty clear what to what to do career wise? You know, I think you know those that are early on in their career maybe you know don't always realise the the importance of making you know quite strategic decisions career wise. Those of us that are a bit further down the 
track uh, like myself look look back and um, you know some, sometimes wonder if, you know what would have happened if we had made different decisions or if the, the opportunities that came up didn't uh, actually present themselves. You know, you're absolutely right. Um, I often refer to these things as sort of life's little inflection points. You know, it's where you can go left, we can go right. And sometimes it may not be obvious um, what left is and what right is. You, you obviously don't, sometimes don't know. And often if you, know, if you go down the right path, you, you don't know what the left path is going to be. You just don't know. Um, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, one bit of advice for people who are sort of entering the workplace or looking at moving on to different careers um, there's a couple of things. One, you know, if you're young enough, take risks. Uh, and I think the the bigger the risks you can take, sort of, you know, map quite nicely to how old you are. Right, the younger you are, probably the bigger, probably the bigger risks you can you can take. You know, it says he has worked at Microsoft for 28 years. You know, <laughs> <laughs> basically made no. Actually, I've made changes within the within the company, but you know, for the most part, you know, the the biggest risks that I ever ever made were, were very early on. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but you know, when I joined Microsoft, I actually resigned from Brymore. Um, I had to do that. I'm not going to go into all the reasons why, but I had to do that. So technically, I had no job, um, and, I, and there was no guarantee of a job either. Uh, but I was also young and stupid, so I knew that I would, you know, I would get a job at some at some point. But that was, you know, that was a decision that I made. Um, probably the biggest and most important decision I ever made in my life, to be honest with you, short of marrying my wife. Um, and, and then the other, and the other bit of advice, and especially if you're in tech, man, you have got to keep learning. You have got to keep learning. Um, uh, there's a guy across the road from me who works for Dell, and he and I were talking a few days ago. And he's roughly my age, and you know, he was saying how. You know, if you don't uh, learn the new, you know, the, the the relevant skills today, at our age, you know, you, you're pretty much going to be worthless. Um, and so you've got to keep keep on top of things. I mean, you know, Microsoft right now, you know, a lot of us are being urged, um, you know, to study uh, AI and machine learning. Uh, even though I'm not a AI or machine learning expert, I'm a cybersecurity guy, but we're still being told, you know, you need to have at least the elevator pitch for AI and ML. Um, so now I'm learning AI and ML, you know, I've learned a heck of a lot. And, um, you know, for someone who's a bit of a geek, um, I find it really interesting. Don't get me wrong, but man, there's other stuff like, you know, as a developer, you know, I've had to learn a lot of new development tools, a lot of new, develop- new development techniques. Um, I've had to learn, you know, new programming languages. I've had to use new, new tools. Um, and you have to do that. You just have to do that. So those would be my two biggest pieces of advice. There would be one, take risks, especially when you're young. Um, you know, because of these life's inflection points. And the next one is you can kind of increase your opportunities by knowing more. So you've, all, you've just got to constantly, constantly learn. And to put things in perspective, in my calendar, I have uh, one hour every day at 3 p.m. I have learn. That's awesome. And I spend, I spend one hour a day learning something. I have a to-do list. I have a list of things that I want to, I want to learn. And uh, I make sure I do those things um, because otherwise I'm going to become irrelevant. I really am. Oh, that's great. That's great advice. So if we sort of jump jump back a bit, you're at Microsoft New Zealand. I remember you know working uh, you know in in that team there at Microsoft 1993. I was 19 or 20, and. Yeah, there there was just this, you know, what was uh, probably yeah, half a dozen people or so that would answer, you know, every incoming, you know, call for Microsoft support. Now, you know, 
Microsoft and technology in general has uh, got somewhat more mainstream since since that point. Um, so I, I don't know how many people you, you would you would need if you were offering a you know, free telephone support for uh, you know every person in, in New Zealand on uh, on Microsoft technology these days. Uh, and of course, that whole landscape has, has changed. But the the piece that I remember, sort of security wise, you you talking about um, was something to do with how Microsoft had architected Windows NT and mm-hmm. how you logged into it. Um, yeah. And you, I mean, you were working basically as a phone support person, which, you know, in New Zealand today, we have, you know, probably thousands of people that are sitting in call centres and, you know, pro- mostly for uh, our telcos and so on. Um, but, you know, that's that's a very common role. How did you get from from there to move up to the U.S. and 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 so on? What were the what were the things that allowed you to somehow get on on a radar of somebody you know halfway around the world? Yeah, so I think I put some of that down to me being um, ridiculously intellectually curious. Uh, I've always been intellectually curious. I, I always want to know how things work. Um, so when I had this little thing put on my desk one day, I said, hey, Michael, you know you're doing this Windows support? I'm like, yeah, well, that includes Windows NT now. And I'm like, yeah, that's not a problem. But I need to know, you know how it works. So, you know, you know, I, had, I don't know if you guys ever remember, we had these compact 486Cs, these lunchboxes. Um, they were supposed to be a portable. And they were huge. Look, just look it up one day, compact 486C. Yep. And um, I had Windows NT running on that thing, like a like an alpha version of it. And I really started getting into it. I really started understanding permissions, access control lists, um, a, you know, access control entries, privileges, um, you know, deep stuff deep in the kernel, um, the whole nine yards. Right. I really wanted to l- learn this. Well, it turns out that there was a little book that was being written called the Windows NT Resource Kit. And uh, it was being written in Redmond, and they needed people to help write some of the content. And the problem was that the knowledge of Windows NT was was pretty scarce, right? Because it was still you know, kind of in, in beta at this time. Um, it may not have even been beta, but anyway, it was really, really early. So, the, you know, the amount of sort of skills out there was relatively slim. And because I was so nosy, uh, you know, I sort of got to learn the innards of Windows NT pretty quickly. And I also have had, had access to the source code. So I was spending so much time just going through the source, just understanding how it all worked. And so, you know, it's a big beast too. Net effect was I was invited to go to Redmond to actually help on this resource kit. So I spent um, about four weeks all up in Redmond um, with the Windows NT security team. And, you know, again, this is one of life's little inflection points, right? If I hadn't spent all that time learning how Windows NT worked and really being nosy and teaching myself and going through the source code, looking at specs. I even, had ac- I even had access to all the original specs written by Dave Cutler and the team. And so I spent all this time like just reading through all this stuff. And that's essentially what got me to Redmond in the first place. Um, so, yeah, that's what I would say is probably one of, the, one of life's other big inflection points. Yeah, awesome. And... And that, how long did it take to sort of lead from there till the point that you actually moved up to the U.S. yourself? That was about 18 months, I think, maybe two years. Uh, got back to New Zealand, um, and then I realized that I really enjoyed working with product groups um, because I was working with peers who were all developers, uh, all engineering staff, and I realized that was my, that was my calling, really. Um, 
So there was some Microsoft consulting services training in Redmond. Um, and if you remember the Microsoft Solutions Framework, MSF, and I was uh, I went to Redmond to do, to, um, to actually deliver some of the training. And while I was while I was in Redmond, I actually interviewed with uh, with four different product groups. Uh, one of them was what what would end up being Certificate Server. Uh, one was got its Commerce Server at the time. One was IIS, and I forget what the fourth one was. Um, but I ended up accepting the job with IIS, the web server. Um, originally on the working on the SDK. And then uh, ended up becoming the security program manager for IIS, which again is not one of life's big inflection points. Um, you know, becoming the security guy on on a on a web server, uh, you know, was a, was a big deal. And you know, I learned a lot, th- many through the school of hard knocks, if nothing else, but learned a heck of a lot doing that. That's cool. And in your in your time at Microsoft, particularly in the those early years, were there other Kiwis that you would, uh, you know, bump into at that stage? Because over the years, has ended up to be, you know, quite a few Kiwis, you know, at, at Microsoft in the US. But what yeah. was it like in those early days? It was a much smaller business, right, during the 90s? Yeah. So at the time, there were, I want to say, two other people that I knew of. Uh, one had gone just a little bit before me and one came after me. And so I ended up spending a lot of time with, actually it turns out we actually lived not far from each other as well in Bellevue. Um, so, uh, and then since then there's been like just a, you know, an onslaught of Kiwis moving to New Zealand, to the, to the U S actually, you know, in general, I mean, you know, Redmond is the mothership, right? So a lot of people move from all over the world to Redmond. It's not just, you know, not, not just New Zealand. Um, but you know, one of my, uh, one of my, you know, a, a really good friend of mine, Brian Schaefer, um, he and I were involved in the Windows NT launches in New Zealand. I was the technical guy, and he was the marketing guy. And we we did these you know, these road shows up and down the country, sort of demonstrating Windows NT. And uh, he was the sales guy. I was the technical guy, and we sort of riff off each other. Um, but he ended up being, you know, one of my one of my groomsmen when I got married. Um, and we were, you know, uh, you know, their son um, Luke. Uh, he he was sort of our, our first son for some time. He's now he's now a senior in college. Um, but yeah, so you know, a lot of people have come from New Zealand um, to Redmond uh, and been very successful, very very successful. Uh, I think in general, Kiwis bring up you know the, the old classic can-do attitude, um, you know, to Redmond. Not that it doesn't already exist, but you know, there's no harm in having a lot of other people with a with a similar can-do attitude. Yeah, that's cool. And in terms of when you know when you come across Kiwis today, do you know do they still sort of have that that something um, you know special to bring to the table? I mean, I've been, I guess I've been sort of delving into a little a little bit recently. You know where where we should be going, how we should be developing the the future of of New Zealand and and our economy. Have we got something here that's a little bit different because of, you know, varying reasons to do with where we are in the world, our mindsets and, you know, attitudes to things and and so on. Do you think that's that that's something that uh, that continues? I, I think so. I don't think I could put a, f- a finger on what it is, though. Um, I think in general... You, you know, I mean, you could say that you know, with with New Zealand being remote, which you know, physically it is remote. Although, you know, in, in internet terms, it's not remote at all, right? I mean, you and I are talking right now in real time. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, the, the, that sort of remoteness has has kind of gone away. But I think there's still a certain passion that New Zealanders bring to to the discussion and to the table in general that that really helps make well-rounded 
um, you know, and inclusive decisions that are not, you know, not necessarily U.S. centric. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, a similar, a similar thing probably happens from someone coming from Israel or coming from, from say, Zambia or from, from, dare I say, it, Australia, right? I mean, it, it's just that different international perspective on things that I think, you know, helps development teams be, be a lot more well-rounded. And I think in general, I think New Zealanders think they're coming from behind in some cases, which isn't true at all. But I think that gives a lot of impetus to want to do the right thing and do it correctly and do it well. Um, I've yet to come across any Kiwi in the U.S. where someone's actually sort of bad-mouthed them um, in terms of them not being able to get the job done. I've never, I've never heard that. Uh, so, no, I, I think that, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, that can-do attitude, I think, you know, is, is absolutely pervasive, uh, whether you whether you realise it or not. Mm, yeah, that's that's good. Now, looking at looking at your journey, you joined um, the the IIS team, Internet Information uh, Server, and and worked there. What were the what was sort of the other those other sort of um, you know key points along uh, along the journey? I remember um, Microsoft, you know, Bill Gates led a kind of a stop on all development at Microsoft at you know at one point to just say hey we've you know we've got a uh, you, you put this in different terms I'm sure but you know my outside view was um, you know look cyber security and and you know the way that code is written and so on um, you know the the way that's done needs needs to change and you had some involvement in in that is, was that one of the other sort of you know key key points for you yeah, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about it, to be honest with you, and, like in terms of this conversation. No, this is, again, this is one of life's, you know, ridiculously influential inflection points. Um, yeah, so 2000 wasn't exactly a great year for Microsoft, let's be honest. Um, lots of vulnerabilities in products, including one of the products that I was in charge of, which was IIS. Um, you know, did IIS 5 have plenty of security features, and this is where there's a big difference between what I do and what a lot of people think of when they think about security. You know, did it have all the appropriate security features? Yeah, it did. IIS 5 was, you know, one of the first, I think maybe the first web server to have Kerberos support. We had client certificate support. We had Active Directory integration. We had certificate services integration. Um, We had lots of great security features. The problem was that some of the code and some of the designs could have been could have been better, um, could have been more secure, and that was something that I think the industry as a whole learned, and certainly you know Microsoft learned, and definitely the IS team learned, and me specifically, absolutely learned, and that's why, you know, I, I have such a strong focus on uh, on secure design and um, writing and desi- designing and writing secure software, but that meeting, so the the thing that led to Bill Gates sending the trustworthy computing memo out, there's a whole bunch of things that all happened that year. Um, one of them um, was that David LeBlanc and I uh, wrote this little book called Running Secure Code. And we wrote that book because, as David said to me one day, he said, have you ever noticed we're kind of getting the same questions day in and day out? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So why don't we write a book on it? And I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. So we wrote this book called Running Secure Code. And um, it came out, the first copy came out uh, around the early first week of December 2000. And because of everything that was going on, I actually had a meeting with Bill Gates to go over basically what's happening in the industry around compromises and insecure code and insecure design and so on. And I gave Bill a copy of the book. And uh, that following, that, so that meeting was on a Friday, and the following Monday he emailed me and said that he you know, read the book over the weekend and, and loved it and learned a lot. Wow. <laughs> um, so that ended up 
a lot of things will happen that year. I'm not going to go and, I mean, believe me, I, I could spend hours just on this topic because, again, this is, from a Microsoft perspective, a massive inflection point. Uh, yeah, that led to the Bill Gates Trustworthy Computing Memo that came out uh, January 2001, and that was basically the, you know, hey, we're putting software development kind of on pause. We're going to put all engineering staff back through training. And so I was in charge of all the developers in Windows. Uh, my colleague, Jason Garms, was in charge of all the program managers, uh, sort of architects, and another colleague of mine, Chris Walker, was in charge of all the testers. And so we, we put all the three major disciplines through essentially boot camp training. Um, to make sure that everyone had a baseline level of knowledge because you have to realize, you know, we're hiring the best and the brightest out of school and they know nothing about designing secure systems or writing secure code. They just don't know. And so we have to fill those gaps, unfortunately. And so we end up putting literally the whole of you know, Microsoft engineering staff through this boot camp training. And then we also... Um, there's a lot of other stuff that we did as well, product by product. So we did Windows first. Actually, the .NET framework had actually already been done and the .NET runtime had actually already been done. And it was actually one of the things that led to the Bill Gates meeting in December. But yeah, so we ended up putting all these different products, so SQL Server, Exchange, Visual Studio, Office, Windows, and so on, essentially back, almost back to the drawing board from a security standpoint. And we started you know, focusing on these products, looking for security vulnerabilities, seeing if there's areas where we could sort of up the ante from a secure design perspective, assuming that the systems are going to be attacked. Um, and, and we, you know, we did that you know, essentially product by product. And uh, that was a good chunk of 2001, 2002. Don't get me wrong. I mean, yeah, yes, we were looking for security vulnerabilities in code, but really the way you get to a better position is by not adding the, the vulnerabilities in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of what we were doing. Uh, and now we're in a much, you know, Microsoft on the whole, you know, is in a much better position, like an industry leader. Don't get me wrong, you know, we're not perfect. I mean, as long as our attackers are drawing breath and coming out with interesting and novel ways of exploiting systems, it will always be a game of chess. But, you know, for the, I think anyone who's, um, you know, looked at the work that we've done, um, you know, recognizes that we've done, you know, a, a great deal around uh, building uh, more secure software. Yeah, I think I think that's certainly you know clear to to anyone that sort of followed what happened at that time, and what sort of an impact did that have on on you career wise? And did you realise at at the time the importance of what you were doing? I realised it was important. I, I really did. Uh, in terms of an impact on my career, I mean that made my career. To be perfectly honest with you, um, I was in a very very fortunate role in that I could work directly with you know, with every product group at Microsoft, right? I mean, every product group. Uh, in fact, not, not, just, not just every product group, you know, Microsoft Research, right? Hey, here we have this kind of issue. Um, Windows can't solve it. The compiler guys can't solve it. We think this is a job for Microsoft Research. How about you guys go think about it for, for six months? Um, so I ended up making lots of connections at Microsoft, uh, up and down, you know, uh, all the way up to, you know, very senior management and, you know, talking you know, to individual developers and helping them out. So it was, it, it was very influential from my perspective. And I, I, would, I would even go as far as to say it probably made my career. Wow. That's pretty cool. Um, what, what, were the, what are probably some of the other highlights that would be, you know, just interesting to, to, to explore? Because I, th- I think there's a lot that we can learn by, you know, hearing other stories and, um, and you know, taking things away. And, and I guess, you know, what I've, um, you know, picked up already is just that, 
you know, you weren't somebody that just turned up at work as a job, right? You know, you found you found something that you were really passionate about, and then you know, you you pushed yourself and you pushed the business to, you know, to do better. You delved in and, and learned everything you could learn. You pushed and prodded and found out how to how to learn more, even if, you know, you, th- this information wasn't necessarily being, you know, offered up to you on a platter. You, you figured out, um, you know, how to find it. And you know, I think that, you know, there's some great lessons just, you know, in that approach to, uh, you know, to working and, yeah, I, I guess you know. Sometimes I, I think you know we need uh, we need more people to uh, to be like that than than you know maybe maybe what is the norm. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of that comes down to you know to how we're wired and what our sort of natural passions are and, and landing in the right place. But yeah, p- part of it is making those decisions, isn't it? To um, just to throw yourself into what you're doing and, and do the absolute best that you possibly can. It, it is, um, and also recognizing where you're weak um, and where you can actually have other people help you out. Uh, I would argue that you know one of my biggest skills when it comes to security is actually not just telling someone how to do something. It's also being able to tell someone they don't have to do it. Um, a lot of security people are very, very good at saying, hey, you know, that's, that's broken. You, you can't do that. But sometimes you just don't have to. Sometimes it's like, you know what, in the overall scheme of things, the risk is so low, um, the impact is so low, and yet over here you've got these other bugs that are not security vulnerabilities necessarily, but they're, they're impacting customers every day. Perhaps you need to spend time on those, <laughs> you know? So sometimes you know, one of the biggest skills is knowing when to say no. Um, the other, uh, so you know, I, I had this manager at Microsoft, uh, Steve Lipner, um, who has since retired from Microsoft. Uh, if anyone's familiar with the Rainbow series of books, they're the... Um, based uh, series of books produced by the Department of Defense in the U.S. for um, basically measuring uh, operating systems or software in general for levels of security. And they're called the Rainbow Series of Books. One of the most well-known is the Orange Book. Another one's called the Red Book. Um, okay. Steve's, name is, Steve, Steve's name is on those books. Right. So, I mean, Steve's been around for a while. So he was my manager for, for a decade. And um, he and I were, were talking one day, and he said, Michael, so you know what one of your biggest failings in life is? I'm like, I've uh, got a feeling you're going to tell me. <laughs> and he said, you don't know when to say no. He said, and the problem is that you end up taking on so much that you end up not doing it sometimes as well as you could. And I'm like, nah, you know, that's Steve. He's been pretty blunt, being pretty honest. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm glad you told me that because I always knew it. But I kind of needed someone to tell me that that was the case. And so what I learned to do, and I think this is really important because in security, you can easily take everyone's take on everyone's workload. And I end up just having to say no sometimes. And sometimes it was, no, you don't have to do that. Um, I can give all sorts of examples, but, you know, sometimes you just don't have to do that. So just don't, just, there's no need to secure that in the way you want to secure it. It's completely over the top. It's ridiculously over the top. So one of the biggest things I've learned is that, you know, one of my biggest, is to, is to understand my weaknesses. And one of those was definitely, I was not, a, I was, perhaps I was afraid to say no, I don't know, um, but I learned very quickly to say no. Yeah, oh, that's that's definitely uh, easier said than done at, at times, right? It Especially is. you've it got is. that sort of can-do attitude and so on, then, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's very I, I, easy I like to take to, I like too to much fix, on. I like to fix things, right? Yeah. I like to fix things. And so, 
if someone has a problem, I want to go ahead and fix it. It doesn't matter what it, it doesn't matter whether it's here at home, um, or you know, or it's a, a massive financial customer running on Azure, right? I I, I want to fix things, uh, and that you just can't. I mean, at the end of the day, you you know, you're one person. The other thing I've also learned to do is. Is the D word is delegate. Sometimes someone else can do that work. You know, um, one thing I've also done that I've learned a lot is to help other people be successful, so that in the next time it comes around, they can do it and not you. So people think I'm being really, really kind because I'm, hey, I, you know, I'm going to help you be successful. You know, don't worry, I'll back you up every step of the way. You'll be fine. Uh, you know, I'll help you build the threat model. I'll help you work with the customers to make sure it's correct. Blah 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 blah. And the person thinks that I'm just being really, really helpful, you know, to help them be successful, which I am. But really, I want them to be more upskilled so that I don't have to do it next time. Yeah, so everybody wins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the other, the last thing I want to point out, one thing that I did learn I am good at is saying, hey, Mary, meet Jim, you know, two different product groups, talk to each other. Uh, you know, Mary has something, Jim, that you might be interested in, you know, from a security standpoint. And because I was working, you know, across all these different companies within well, organizations within Microsoft at all these different levels, I got to see everything that was going on and I'm, from around security. I mean, literally everything. I knew exactly what Office was doing. I knew exactly what SQL Server was doing. I knew what the Windows was doing. I knew what the compiler guys were doing. And so on and so forth. And so if I saw something that was of interest, I'd say, hey, you and the office team need to talk to the compiler guys because they're doing something that may solve a very specific problem that you're interested in. Which that's that's really uh, interesting because, I, you know, I guess with big firms, you often hear about the challenges of scale, of silos and you know, whether it's one team sort of competing with another or, you know, there's so many different things. What are the things that you found hard working in, you know, what for any Kiwi is a really large business, probably, you know, or for anyone, right? It must have its challenges as well as its upsides. Yeah, I, I think um, one thing that was always a problem in the very beginning was finding appropriate information for something you're interested in. That became easier and easier as I realized I was always kind of one step away, one person away from the person who knew the answer. Um, and now with the internet, to be honest with you, with you know, everything's available online, uh, including inside of Microsoft, you know, we, you know, a lot of stuff that we have is uh, has made that problem kind of go away. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not a political animal at all. And so I still have a problem navigating political stuff. Uh both with with customers and within Microsoft, I, I would much rather have somebody else take care of the the political blocking and tackling. I just want to get stuff done. Uh, to be brutally honest with you, I just want to get stuff done. If I'm not sitting in front of a code editor, if I'm if I'm answering you know an email about some political thing, I'm not happy. Right? I'm so much happier in, in front of Visual Studio Code, you know, writing yeah. ARM templates for uh, for Azure. Yeah. So what are the what are the other things along the way that uh, that that you know, people might find interesting or, or learn from in your in your journey. So one thing with cybersecurity that I think a lot of people need to understand, if you want to have a career in cybersecurity, realize that the career landscape is massive. Um, I've been very fortunate in that I've been around the cybersecurity space for such a long time 
that I've managed to get a lot of breadth and a lot of depth in different areas. There are still areas I, I don't really do much work in, but at least I know enough to be able to do the elevator pitch for things. Um, so, for, you know, for example, incident response. Um, yeah, you know, I kind of know what happens and who you call and um, what things to do and what things not to do. But you're not going to call me in to do the actual incident response, right? I, that's just not my just just not my thing. So, if you want to if you want to do cybersecurity, you've almost got to be very very broad, but an inch deep, and then you got to find a few topics that really interest you, and then go mile deep. Um, you know, I, I, here's an example, right? So I was just looking at I, I was actually just looking at my calendar just a minute ago. I was looking at yesterday, uh, sorry, today's today's meetings. One was with a massive telecommunications company in the U.S. talking about um, PCI compliance, like credit card compliance. Another one was with a customer in healthcare working on very, very low-level cryptographic defenses. Another one was a, a large bank who's opening up an online bank for the very first time. And I'm not going to name, name the company, country because we'll give it away, but it's not the U.S., and we were talking about um, authentication and authorization of the banking clients, right? So very, very different areas. And, and actually, another conversation I had um, actually the day before was with a, uh, another healthcare customer talking about some of the new features in SQL Server around what is called secure enclaves, where essentially you can keep data encrypted while it's in use. You know, encryption of data at rest, encryption of data on the wire. This is encryption of data while it's in use, so it's super, super low level because it's all the way down to the CPU level, the special um, instructions that are actually on the Intel and AMD CPUs. So the point I'm getting at is <laughs> those topics are all completely different, yeah. totally different, uh, require totally different levels of, of, of knowledge. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, you can, you, know, you, can, you can sort of muddy your way through it, but you know, in this case, I can't because they're massive customers. Uh, and, uh, you know, and don't get me wrong, I would never try to muddy my way through something. But the point is, cybersecurity is massive. It's just massive. So find what you're interested in and and run with it. And you know what? If you don't like it, kind of doesn't matter. Find something else in cybersecurity and run with that. And if you don't, if you don't know that, you don't like that, doesn't matter. Find something else and run with that until you find the thing you like. The nice thing is, those five things that you didn't like, you A, now know you don't like them, and B, you actually learned about them at the same time. You learned enough to realize you don't like them, but at least you know about them now, right? So at least when a customer in the future or, or you know someone talks to you in the future about that particular topic, you can say, well, you know, hey, I, I know enough about that topic to sort of at least answer your question. Um, so yeah, you know, cyber is massive. So you, you're going to end up being you know, a mile wide, but an inch deep on just about everything. And then in a small number of topics, you'll end up spending a lot of time and really, really, really learn those topics in depth, you know, inside out, upside down, the wrong way around. That's great advice. And I think if, you know, if we look at, at the market now for anyone, whether it's uh, someone who's deciding where to go with their career or whether it's a, a mentor or a parent looking at you know where that where they should encourage somebody a bit younger to look at getting into uh, or even those that have been in the tech sector for some time and, and are looking for 
a change, then, I mean, there, there isn't probably much better thing you could do other than looking into the opportunities within cybersecurity, right? Because it, it's just going to keep growing. It's not going to be shrinking uh, anytime soon. There is a role, of course, for artificial intelligence and machine learning, but I, I right. don't see that sort of taking taking away a whole lot of a whole lot of jobs anytime soon, right? Yeah, um, I, I, to be honest with you, I can't answer that last question. I just really, I mean, AI and ML are just, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning are just absolutely massive areas where it's being used, you know, absolutely all over the place. But in, in security, you know, in Anzio, we use um, AI and ML uh, on a daily basis to help protect our systems. You know, when you stand up a solution in Azure, we can learn pretty, we being the system, not we some people, uh, we the system can learn norm, what looks like relatively normal network traffic in the first few minutes, then give it a week or so. We actually have a really good understanding on what makes up good network traffic and what makes up bad network traffic. To so the point where we can use these, these machine learning um, algorithms and AI algorithms to say, okay, that packet is anomalous, or those packets are anomalous, or that, you know, 27 gigabits per second of traffic is, is anomalous. Um, and, you know, and having it in such a way that it, you know, still protects your system, um, but it's using AI, like it's learning as it goes, as it goes along. And that's so, not, I mean, that's not AI, something a human could be doing, is it? I mean, it's just nuts, the, the pace at which that has to happen and, and uh, you know, the, the immediacy of the response that, that I guess the technology delivers. That's that's a really good point, actually, Paul. Because humans can't do this. The, the the sheer volume of traffic into Azure is you know is 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 immense. I mean, I, I don't even know what the figures are to be honest with you. But the, the, it's just immense. So there's no way a human being could not you know a spot traffic at the speed a machine could or machines could, uh, let alone respond. Um, there's a demo that I saw. Uh, using the Azure Distributed Denial of Service defenses, where um, there was a special tool that, that, that we had access to to test this stuff. Uh, thankfully, it's not publicly available. But they launched an attack against Azure, and you could actually see Azure. Res- so the guy was actually showing us. And you could actually see the Azure fabric responding, like within about half a second. Um, and the application didn't even know there was an attack going on. That's just wonderful. But there's just no way humans could 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 do that. And now, don't get me wrong; the models are invented by, by humans. But at the end of the day, humans can't just can't do that. Yeah, and, and that's, that's I guess kind of what what we what we're looking for on the cybersecurity front is for technology to do as much of that lifting as possible. For technology to sort of you know insulate individuals and organizations from you know as much of the risk as as possible but you know of course there's so many aspects that that need a a, a people component and you don't you know you don't just have everything happen automatically and uh, i i imagine they're they're you know looking at the current sort of state of things and the the shortage of people in the cyber security area uh, that's likely to keep growing in in the immediate uh, future anyway yeah and Actually, it's more than just that, right? Um, I mean, in my humble opinion, I think if you want to get into security, you have to do it through a cloud lens. Uh, and obviously, being from Microsoft, I'm going to say through an Azure lens. But I think in general, you have to look at it through a, through a cloud lens. Um, you sort of have to take care of, you know, of both birds with the one stone, Um Cybersecurity and cloud. You may as well do both at the same time. If you're learning, you may as well do them both. And here, something, let me put this in perspective. So I've been, so I looked at my um, customers that I work with 
both inside Microsoft and outside Microsoft in the last five years. Uh, there's been plenty of customers across the whole spectrum, um, education, um, you know, nation states, Olympic Games, voting systems, healthcare, military, education. I think I already said that. But anyway, all, you know, the whole gamut. One was pure Windows. The rest were all on Azure. Just, just stop and think about that for a minute. Now, was that me just picking and choosing? No, it wasn't. It was customers coming to me and saying, hey, we want you to help us out with this stuff. And it was all on Azure, with the exception of this one customer, which was in Eastern Europe. Uh, and that was pure Windows. And the, only, and, and the reason why I worked on it is because the, the, the expertise was like deep in the bowels of Windows kernel mode stuff. Um, so I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. But the, so it's only a bit, of a bit of a change of pace. But yeah, everything else has been Azure. Absolutely everything. I mean, and I mean absolutely everything. Uh, you know, does that mean my Windows skills are useless? No, not at all, because people are also deploying VMs, you know, Windows VMs and Linux VMs in, in Azure. So the skills are you know, still useful. But, you know, understanding that, you know, on-premises security is not the same as cloud security, right? I mean, yeah, we can have firewalls in Azure, and yeah, we can have network isolation. But, you know, the, the boundary is more of an identity boundary now rather than a, a hard firewall boundary. Um, so it's a different mindset. It's a totally different mindset, um, completely different. And so I would urge, you know, if anyone wants to get into this space, and then they're new to it. I would I would do the two firm. I would do cloud, you know, do Azure and cybersecurity at the same time, um, rather than doing sort of on-prem. You know, how, let me let me give you an example. Um, I'm on a a review board for a school just north of Dallas. Uh, it's a technical school, and they were asking me to review a new an upcoming curriculum. And I looked at it, and I'm like. Really? You really want to teach kids how to provision routers? You really want to teach kids how to do all, you know, routing, you know, in, hard, in specific hardware? I said, ah, I can spin up, you know, user-defined routes in Azure all in software, the click of a button. I don't need to worry about hardware. People are not spinning up hardware anymore. They're actually, they're not going out and buying. I, I realize this is a gross generalization, but... People are not going out and buying hardware. They're, they're, they're you know, renting it in the cloud. They're spinning up VMs. They're spinning up platform as a service environments. They're letting you know Azure do the software defined software defined networking. Um, and so I said to the school, I said, look, I don't I don't disagree with you teaching kids you know how routers work and how switches work and how hardware firewalls work. I think mean, it's great, but where's the cloud material in all of this stuff? They had no cloud. Wow. I'm like, no, 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 no. You've got to do cloud. In fact, I would argue, get rid of the hardware stuff, the hardware router stuff, and replace it with 100% cloud. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of... uh a lot of wisdom in that, and yeah, we, I mean, we certainly see it with uh, you know with with people who are you know f- focused heavily on Cisco certifications and you know these varying types of things, and it's much more common to to see people that have 
they've gone and studied and that's kind of that's their thing and that's what they want to they want to do rather than hey you know I've, I've learned all the latest and greatest you know cloud things and got these cloud certifications and you know I'm ready to go with with those systems which yeah speaks speaks to um, yeah probably a number a number of perspectives that people don't necessarily know where they should be focusing and then right. what's being offered from uh, you know the educational institutions in terms of you know technical training schools and so on well don't, don't get me wrong i mean so I've, i said this years and years ago and i still stand by it you know if you're a developer moving to the cloud you need to learn basic networking if you're a network engineer moving to the cloud you've got to learn basic programming because all of a sudden these worlds just smush together and um you know i'm mainly an app dev guy but I've all of a sudden had this you know, baptism of fire with networking because in Azure you know, and other cloud platforms, you have to learn some basic networking. You absolutely do. And um, this becomes really important when you're talking with you know, large network, you know, large customers um, who have very specific requirements around things like data ingress and data egress. Um, you know, being able to route the traffic through a dedicated device, you know, a protection of data, you know, make sure it's not being leaked uh, outside the organization. That requires things like user-defined routes. It's, so it's useful understanding all of that stuff. Don't get me wrong. But I think if you're going to spend all your time learning either, as you put it, you know, a specific brand of hardware, I'm not going to say it's useless. I'm not going to say that at all. It's very beneficial. But I think if you had to prioritize your time, I would focus on the on cloud stuff. I really, I really would, especially when I look at you know with with COVID nineteen. Um, you know, I, I hate to make light of it, but I saw a, you know, a cartoon the other day. <laughs> you know, what's what pushed you to the cloud? You know, what was you know what basically forced your digital transformation? Was it A the CEO, chief executive officer? Was it B the CTO, the chief technical officer? Or was it C COVID nineteen? And, you know, for the answer for a lot of customers that I'm working with, um, I'm actually working with a healthcare customer right now, and they're moving a COVID-19 workload um, to Azure. So you can imagine they have to get it done lickety-split and has to be secure because it's handling patient data. So, you know, we see this kind of thing happening all the time where people, they're not, they're not going buying, they're not going out, this particular company, they're not going, going out and buying hardware. Right, they're, they're spinning the solution up in the cloud because it gives them so much agility and so much scalability, and frankly, security in many cases. You know, when you you look at all the you know the capabilities that we have in the cloud. I know I got I know I got into this topic somehow. I'm not sure how, but but yeah, I mean, if you have to prioritize your learning, remember I said earlier earlier on, you you've got to learn. You've got to keep learning, and if you have to choose just one thing right now and you haven't already been down that route. I would definitely focus on on cloud, and if you if you can, cloud security, cloud architecture definitely, and then cloud security following in behind. Yeah, I, I always sort of assume, and particularly in New Zealand where we have so many sort of smaller to medium organisations that, yeah, just about everything's already in the in the cloud. But uh, right. then there's always sort of wake up wake up calls and you know situations I, I come across that that remind me that you know, for varying types of organisations and you know varying ages of their technology and and other things means that it's. Uh, 
yeah, it's far than far from a done deal for everybody just just yet. Uh, yeah, so it's it's good to be uh, reminded of that in terms of um, how we focus in terms of our our learning. Yeah, and the other thing to bear in mind is that Microsoft is was spinning up a new data center in New Zealand. Uh, I don't know the dates, but the fact that there will be a you know, a data center in New Zealand is huge. Because right now, if you're building on Azure in New Zealand, you know, you're having to hop, a, hop across the ditch to Australia, whereas that data center will be in New Zealand, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, so, you know, network latency and that kind of stuff um, becomes less of an issue. Yeah, I think that is, was probably caught a lot of people by surprise, I'm sure. It, uh, yeah. uh, probably caught some competitors by surprise, too. It's something that is absolutely huge for uh, New Zealand to have uh, that, that sort of investment coming, uh, coming into New Zealand. And it's, it's an indicator of, I guess, you know, there's, there's a number of things, but you know, clearly, a, you know, a commitment from Microsoft to the New Zealand market. And, you know, when I've, you know, I guess, interacted with so many different, you know, technology companies that are, you know, many, many cases multinational, um, it does vary in terms of how much commitment there is to the New Zealand market. Uh, sometimes it's, it's just a sales presence with, Maybe not even you know any staff in New Zealand. I would what I would like to see more would be that there's actually you know development teams and and engineering work you know the innovation stuff uh, happening in New Zealand and this move by Microsoft is, is certainly encouraging and uh, you know, I hope there'll be more opportunities for for Microsoft and other uh, you know large tech firms to have more of an involvement in the in the New Zealand yeah. market. Great. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to add before we finished up? No, I don't. I mean, I, I would hope that more people do take the dive, not only into cloud, but also into security in general, cybersecurity in general. We need more people who are not just security sort of, you know, alpha geeks, you know, but we need plenty of those. But we also need people who just are sort of security, cybersecurity generalists. So, you know, Please do go, you know, learn more about cloud. Do go learn more about cybersecurity. You know, learn how it can make you a better, you know, whatever role you're in in, in IT, you're an architect or a developer or project manager. You know, project managers have to understand, you know, you've got to make room for security. Sometimes that may be, you know, through compliance, right? PCI through GDPR, you know, PCI is payment card industry and GDPR is the uh, the data protection uh, regulation in, in Europe. And there's many others, you know, as, especially as a potential, the likes of healthcare, uh, you know, learn those things. Uh, it will make you a more rounded individual when it comes to um, comes to cybersecurity in general. Uh, hey, and if you, if you if you really want to uh, sign up for our Azure Security Podcast, azsecuritypodcast.net, uh, we do it every two weeks. And we cover all things security as you related. So, uh, you know, give it a try. Uh, it's available in all the usual places, you know, Spotify, Apple, Google. Um, I, I didn't intend to come on here to, to advertise the podcast, but, you know, have a listen. It may give you an idea. Admittedly, it's really aimed at people who are, who are in the industry, but, you know, have a, have a listen. But, yeah, I mean... A great show, by the way. I've been I've been listening in, Michael, and uh, caught a few episodes so far. And it's yeah, it's really cool to see you uh, launching into into the podcasting arena and and just sharing some of your uh, expertise and that of your colleagues that are on the show. And I quite like the the sort of roundtable type format. It's not a roundtable in in one place because of the, the nature of everybody being in yeah and uh, yeah, yeah and com- coming in remotely. But it, it's great. It works well. Yeah, and actually, so Sarah Young, who's on the podcast, um, she's fantastic. She's actually in Wellington. Oh, cool. A lot of people don't know that she's in Wellington, yeah. 
so yeah, the, the podcast is a lot of fun. I've learned I've learned a lot from doing it. But I, I just want to leave you know, leave people with one thing. You know, if you're if you're not thinking about the cloud, like you, you know, you have reservations about security and so on. You know, revisit things. Things have changed dramatically in the last four or five years. And please, you know, do spend some time learning about cybersecurity. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Michael Howard, for joining joining the show. For those that are looking out for your podcast, what do they need to be searching for in their podcast app? It's just the, the Azure Security Podcast. Awesome. That's all it is. Oh, well, thank you. And um, thanks, everybody, for listening in. And, of course, a huge thank you to our show partners that make the New Zealand Tech Podcast uh, possible and also play a, a really important role in, in supporting the tech and innovation sectors uh, here in New Zealand. Uh, so thank you to Sumo Logic, Vodafone New Zealand, Spark New Zealand, Vocus, HP, Samsung, Gorilla Technology, and our headline partner, Umbrella Connect. All right, thanks everyone. We'll catch you next week for the next episode. See ya. New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community. Proudly supported by Umbrella Connect.